Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. So today we're talking with Lauren Basson, who is a member of the Echo Park Neighborhood Council. And we're going to talk with her a little bit about what a neighbor, neighborhood council does in the city of L.A., why it's uh, important for local politics, and also the history of the neighborhood uh, in lieu of what recently happened with the current board. I think a discussion is in order for the history of racism in the area. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you for having me. 100 percent. So first of all, I want to talk with you about, you know, you've lived in Echo Park a great many years and it's obviously changed. I'd say the last six or seven years, we've seen a push towards gentrification, increase in rents, um, uh, old time residents being displaced. And I think part of part and parcel to that was the gang injunction that came in 2013. I don't know that you can argue that a gang injunction actually helps get rid of gangs. It generally just pushes them into into other neighborhoods. And I think there was a case that was made by some of the local residents that the push was really a way to pave the way for the gentrification for wealthy people to come in, buy real estate, fix the real estate, increase the rents, et cetera. How do you feel about that? Well, what I can say from what I've seen and experienced right alongside of my neighbors is that there have been um, a series of really battering events. And the gang injunction was the one that was most city driven. And, you know, it wasn't just Echo Park. I mean, what they've done to Pico Union with that thing and the way they blockaded streets and essentially treated residents as if they were all incarcerated. Right. Um, that, that for me, was a, a huge failure on the part of James Hahn, who I thought um, in that instance really betrayed his father's legacy yeah. as a reformer and as a builder of bridges in this city and in this county. Um, one of the things I did notice with the gang injunction is that it seemed to come at the same time that speculators decided that Echo Park Lake wasn't a place to dump dead bodies. Right. When this was mostly a brown working class um, neighborhood of mom and pop shops, of students, of itinerant workers, of immigrants, the park was allowed to, to basically disintegrate and was a no-go zone for a lot of people. And the gang injunction, the reason it was struck down, was wholly unconstitutional. But what it did was that it gave the LAPD a license to harass. And they didn't just harass the known gang members, who them, whom they knew by name. They harassed openly anybody who, in their mind, appeared to be one, and, and really created this, this atmosphere of distrust, um, when it should have been one of safety, because my neighbors and I deserved to be able to walk in that park at night yeah. safely. And that wasn't the case. Right. Right. No, this is true. And in fact, we saw the same thing happen in Silver Lake area, right? So, yep. so uh, there definitely has been an undercurrent of, of the gentrification coming in. And I think also the racism growing because of it. Do you think that that's true? One, well, this is a really interesting um, aspect of this conversation because we're not really dealing with the most part with overt racism. What we're dealing with is the, the sort of um, inherent biases yeah. of, of white privilege. 100%. And that I've seen for sure. I remember the first time actually that I noticed it. Um, and this was right after things started to calm down uh, after 92. And uh, I had uh, uh, my little nephew and he would, you know, I would take him outside and, you know, it got to be nicer. You could go outside and walk around at night and especially in the summertime. And what you saw was um, people who were acting like 
they didn't have a care in the world. So, you know, on the one hand, families could go out in the afternoon and you'd see them going out for a walk and, you know, it's like seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. I see older people coming in at night. But what you didn't see and you still don't see are people at one o'clock in the morning, midnight, walking around by themselves with their expensive headphones on. That's white privilege. That says this is going to protect me and somehow I will be better off than all the other people who would never do this who would walk in pairs, who would move quickly, and who would not flash things that are of high value. Um, maybe inadvertent, but it begins to create this understanding that somehow um, I'm safer than you are, or I'm more valuable than you. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. Um, so let me ask you this. Recently, the Eagle Rock Neighborhood Council, or Eagle Rock, I live in Eagle Rock, Recently, the Echo Park Neighborhood Council had a situation where one of the board members, his name is Tad, uh, for all intents and purposes, lynched a statue on his front porch and he posted the photos on Instagram and other social media and didn't seem to see have, have a problem with it. And it's really bothersome to me that this is happening, period, but also happening in an environment that we are in right now where we're actually seeing lynchings going on. And, and I think I was really also upset when I saw some of his responses to community members and to constituents that were, were trying to tell him how awful it was, how he should apologize. And he was very flippant. Um, I saw some responses where he was talking about uh, reverse racism, which is not a thing as far as I'm concerned. There's no such thing. You are, if you're a white person, you are the group that has propagated a systemic problem. You're not the victim of the system that you helped create. That's just not possible. And I was really disillusioned to see him say, make comments that um, he was being bullied by black people. And it was shocking. It was really shocking for me to see this. Um, I don't know to what extent you can speak on this situation, but if you can, what are your thoughts on it? So this matter has now come to the board and it will be uh, considered at a future agenda item, I believe, sometime at the, towards the end of July. And because the board, and I'm one of them, uh, has to adjudicate this matter, I need to maintain um, a very neutral attitude and refrain from comments. This is just best practice. It doesn't mean that um, I'm trying to keep anything away from people. What I am trying to do is make sure that as a member of the board, like my fellow board members, that we act above and beyond reproach so that we can properly adjudicate this without um, further tarnishing the board's reputation for the failure to act and, and honor due process. And that's really what we're talking about here. So while I, I understand people would be interested in what I'd have to say as one of the few um, people of color on the board, although that number is getting better, um, I have to refrain from now, but if you'll invite me back once this matter okay. is settled, I'd be happy to share my insights. I will absolutely invite you back. Are you kidding me? We absolutely want to know what you have to say. I mean, I don't know if you can comment on this either. Have Have you ever felt that your fellow board members have behaved in a racist manner towards you during meetings? Yes. Uh, can you Can you tell stories on that, or is that off topic too? Or off? I don't want to add fuel to the fire right okay. now, um, but I can unequivocally say yes and i can also say that i brought it to the to the attention of board members that i trusted and the um this is 
this reckoning has been a long time coming and I think I, I need to just leave it there for now. No, and I hear you, Lauren. Um, I will say, for me, I also I also attended the neighborhood council meeting on on uh, on this on last Thursday, and I was really kind of disgusted by the way the chair was handling the meeting because every time, look, I mean, the the entire point of the neighborhood council is to respond to the constituency. You're the go between between uh, the, the stakeholders in the community and city hall, more or less, and. Your obligation should be listening to these folks. And she didn't seem to want to hear what was being said to her. And I remember at one point in the meeting, um, a young girl was saying that how upset she was, how, how pained she was as a person of color to have to witness this. And that it was just even more painful for her to have to witness the board being so dismissive of the situation. And you could see Darcy's face. She was, she was just sitting there going like, and I was like, wow, that's really over your head. And if that's the case, if she's that naive to the problem, then she's part and parcel to the problem. Um, I really would like to understand why Chad and Chris, his defender, <clears throat> who was one of the worst commentators on the situation, why they are not resigning. If they would just resign, if they could just see the wisdom of that, I think it would allow the situation to heal a whole lot faster. Why do you think he won't resign? Well, I can't speculate, and, and that would be a fool's errand. What yes. I, I can tell you two things. Okay. Uh, the first one is that I and the majority of the board first had heard about this incident at the, uh, the last uh, meeting, the last full board meeting. It was a shock to us. Um, we were further shocked to find out that the chair had responded, and um, I believe I'm perfectly um, – uh, legally entitled to point this out, which is that to this day, we have not seen what the chair said in our name to the complainant. Oh, really? That doesn't yes. seem appropriate at all. Well, uh, wow. No, please. Sorry. So that um, if you can imagine, we were as shocked as many of the other people in the audience because we had no clue that this was out there. Um, furthermore, it's my understanding that a lot of this exchange took place on next door and I'm not on that platform. Okay. So I had, I was just mystified um, that now the board has been made aware of things uh, by stakeholders. I personally would handle it differently. Um, but this is who is the chair of the board elected by a majority of the board, and we will just have to see how this is adjudicated over the next 30 to 60 days. Right. Let me also ask you this, um, just as to have an understanding of how the Neighborhood Council functions, uh, Darcy, the board chair, seemed to sort of deflect to the city attorney's office quite a bit during the meeting. So when she was asked about censure, when she was asked about taking various steps to do something about the situation, she seemed to not want to do anything and say that her hands were being tied by the city attorney's office, which seemed a little bit strange to me. How tied are your hands if you're on the neighborhood council by the city attorney's office? Well, I don't know if it's by the city attorney's office necessarily. We are bound, first and foremost, by the same ethics guidelines that any state official has to. I mean, we have to take an ethics exam and swear an ethics oath. We have a code of conduct which is maintained by the Board of Neighborhood Commissioners. And we have a, um, there's also the Dunn Protocols, 
right? So Don is the umbrella organization under which all the neighborhood councils work. And we are assigned a minder. Uh, minder is probably the wrong word, but let's just say he's our neighborhood empowerment advocate is his official title. Okay. And every neighborhood council has one. The city attorney's job, from what I know from the um, city attorney seminars I've attended, is really to make sure that the neighborhood councils don't get the city in Dutch because we are a city entity. Right. Right. So their whole point is to keep us from violating the law and and putting the city at risk. Protocols for the city attorney are that the city attorney deals directly with and only with the uh, board chair or board president, some neighborhood councils call them president. The only time that I, as uh, an individual board member, could reach out to the city attorney and get a response is if I had a personal ethical question about whether or not to recuse myself if I had a conflict of interest, in which case the city attorney um, would reply to me. Otherwise, whatever the city attorney says um, or recommends stays strictly between the chair and the city attorney's office. So that would explain why the city attorney hasn't reached back to me for comment. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> because I, I actually did, I sent the city attorney's office, office a com, to ask them to comment on this because here's the other part of the scenario. I would think that Tad's action has already done all of those things. They've now set themselves up for a discrimination problem. I mean, there's, there's no two ways about the fact that what he did was discriminatory and hateful. I, I mean, and... And yes, all of that exchange that came after was on Nextdoor. Um, I had the displeasure of reading most of it, and it was it was something else. Let me put it to you that way. It was something else. I, I almost felt more, more angry about the responses and his defense of what he did. He was playing the victim, really, and accusing other well, people of being hateful towards him. And it was like, wow, this guy's not hearing anything. I don't want to get too much into discussing somebody else's behavior, although I'm happy to discuss my own. Um, as I pointed out, my role as a board member um, will now be to be the fact finder or one of the fact finders. And in that role, I really think I've got to maintain um, a position of objectivity right. and wait to see all the evidence and evaluate all the evidence before arriving at any decision. And also, too, I mean, people say a lot of things, but me personally, I watch what they do. Yeah, I watch how they good. act. Yeah. And I think that um, the community may very well be doing that now. But the um, what's interesting to me, um, you asked me a little while ago about gentrification and its impact. And I've seen some really horrible things happen to my neighbors. Um, you know, don't get sick in this city because if you get sick, you could get evicted. And once you're evicted, good luck getting another apartment back. And that's after a lifetime of paying your rent um, and being a good citizen. And so with that, one thing I've noticed about this COVID-19 age and the way that this pandemic has laid bare a lot of the inequalities in our system and the way that we do things and how ill-prepared we as a city are for major emergencies. I mean, this is talk about a wake-up call. Right. It's also, from what I've observed personally, shown people how much we all have to risk. And I've been really, really encouraged by the number of people who said, 
I've lived here for one year or five years. Yeah. You know, they're not the legacy residents, but who have volunteered to help on the homeless committee uh, outreach that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of, who have volunteered to uh, practice mutual aid with other organizations, who have stepped up to say, um, to even now begin to serve on committees. There, this is a side of gentrification yeah. that I would welcome. And yeah. when I say gentrification, I mean people, newcomers who've come in and who've maybe been able to uh, meet the rent, although a lot of them now are discovering that without a job, that becomes painfully, painfully yeah. difficult. But who also are respectful of our community traditions, who understand that there is a culture already in place here, who patronize the local and want to protect and keep the local businesses yeah. functioning. Yeah. These are good things. And oh, these people are stepping forward to really um, assist with community. And for me, that has been re- that has been the shining light of this lockdown. Indeed. In fact, I noticed some of the commentators at the council meeting were new residents and they were very angry about what they were witnessing. And in fact, there was a, a, I'm not sure who it was, there was an older woman that had obviously lived in the neighborhood a long time that was actually defending the council saying we should ignore this and know who our real enemies are kind of a thing. And the younger ones that were new to the neighborhood were like, they weren't gonna have that. They were like, no, we can we can be angry at both things. This is unacceptable. So, so that's true. Um, there was also this really um, fairly large protest that I attended right in front of Echo Park Lake right there um, a couple of weeks ago. rise to the occasion and point out Indeed. things that are wrong, which is yes. makes me feel better too. Um, let me ask you this. So Silver Lake Neighborhood Council, which is adjacent, that's the adjacent neighborhood, um, they just passed an anti-racism resolution. And I have no doubt that it might be a semi-response to what's going on with an Echo Park Neighborhood Council. It might not be, but I would imagine that there's some relationship there. They might have been talking about doing it earlier but this sort of brought it to their attention that it was necessary because it's best to just have that in place and i can't believe that these things aren't already in place quite frankly but here we are in 2020 right um is it possible at this point to do that with echo park or has that ship sailed or or what what can we do about adding some sort of resolution at this point well one of the things that the really unfortunate things that have happened with the, the current issues roiling our board is that some really good people have been working really hard to put out uh, events 
you know, albeit virtually for now, in the interest of the community. And two of those uh, were it's still in the development phase. And now they are, you know, hopefully not too compromised but and just delayed because going through with them at this point would really look like cynical pandering and undermine the very neighborhood uh, community ties and uh, relationships that we're trying to build and forge. And, you know, people spend a lot of time on these things, yeah. really trying to get the support together and work on the planning. And, you know, and quite a few of them are people of color. And so, you know, um, that is sad because the community needs this. But now the entire board has to uh, work to regain the trust of the residents. And so while I know we've been talking about some of this loosely among ourselves and it's been presented at the Outreach and Communications Committee, which I'm no longer a co-chair of, but um, the people in charge are are really, really solid, um, it's just going to have to be delayed. And that's unfortunate because at a time like this, you really, really want to get a groundswell of support because as a city, we need that. Yeah. And especially in our area where, where there tends to be a lot of overlap um, in terms of ideas and initiatives between East Hollywood, Silver Lake, yeah. Los Feliz, Eagle Rock, yeah, exactly. and uh, Highland, Highland Park and Atwater Village and us. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, these are all these are all those sort of hip happening um, areas of East L.A. now. And with that. Oil Heights is next. Oil Heights is next, probably. Yeah. So, which yeah. I mean, what worries me is that all of this is happening. I mean, it's great. I love that. I've lived here a long time, too, Lauren, and I love that there's all these great things to do now that we didn't have before. But I also worry about the fact that we really don't have any uh, because of Costa Hawkins. We don't really have an adequate supply of affordable housing. And I know if I had to buy my house today, I could not afford it. There's just no way. Well, yeah. And so what you're seeing, well, we could spend days talking about the failure of City Hall and why why this is a problem. Um, What I will say is that when we did, we meaning Echo Park Neighborhood Council, sponsored a tenants uh, rights forum, I guess it was maybe six or nine months ago, it was packed and the majority of people at that forum were elderly residents terrified of being ellis out of their you know they're too old to work too frail to work they have owned they have earned their golden years and now they are looking at not having enough you know they're on fixed incomes and probably some of them have been for years even with a payout would not be able to find similar safe housing in a neighborhood with nearby services, which is usually what elderly folks do. They move somewhere that they can afford on their budget, projecting, you know, 10 or 15 years into the future and in a way that allows them to stay independent and navigate by using a bus or by using access and have everything nearby. For them, it wouldn't just be uprooting, but them into something unfamiliar, which could have severe consequences, it means possibly being homeless. And what I can tell you, when we started, what it'll be, it was in September of last year, we started offering as part of our, um, so let me back up, the Echo Park uh, Homelessness and Housing Committee worked for over a year to get some services in place, things like secure parking, uh, things like mobile showers, 
um, right. doing all the hard background work that folks never see. It takes a lot of volunteer hours dealing with the bureaucracy of the city. So finally, we get the shower set up. We got the parking approved, although the city wouldn't actually open it yet, but that's another story. And the committee decided to build some auxiliary services around this. And I am so, so proud of the people that I worked on that committee with and alongside of to make this happen. And we were able to get um, hot food service, wow. which was my uh, one of my charges was to try and come up with the uh, donations to make that happen. We had a uh, regular visits from the um, homeless health care to do the intake interviews to get people um I don't know how they rate them, but this is, helps to get people on the list for right. housing. Right. Uh, we had uh, used clothing, um, you know, gently used clothing uh, that we let people, uh, the people could come in and get those clothes. I mean, it was, uh, it was really fantastic. And we started with 20 and by March um, we had hit 60 until COVID closed us down. And what I can tell you that I saw that was, really disturbing. It was not just the increase in the diversity of the people who were homeless. It was the increasing number of food insecure elderly that we were seeing. Elderly people who were coming to us to get the food that they couldn't buy because they were trying to save every penny for rent. It's insane. I just, oh God, that makes me so angry. This does not have to be this way, folks. This is false scarcity. I mean, the platonomy just keeps extracting more and more wealth. It's not like the money doesn't exist in the country. It does. It's just all going to the one person. It's like it's not like the empty apartments don't exist. The empty. That's the other thing, right? We have empty. Uh, it, so vacancy tax, I think, might help. I don't know, but there are empty apartments. You're correct. And so this idea that when they say that there's no, uh, there's not enough stock, I'm like, there is. There's not a, enough affordable stock, and those are two different conversations. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And the and what is affordable these days? Yeah. I mean, when a teacher can't afford right. to live and rent uh, in Los Angeles, or a teacher uh, with a family can't afford to rent and live in Los Angeles, that tells you that that rent is not affordable. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that the people who do the majority of jobs that our economy depends on, they cook our food. They watch our children. They take care of our loved ones in assisted housing. They teach our children. You know, those people, they can't afford to live here. Then that means somebody can't afford to go to work. Yeah. And you can see how the, the domino effect, uh, you know, the uh, the rising tide is not lifting boats. It's sinking it's them. It's sinking boats, yeah. And that is, it is the rising tide of inaffordability for too many people in the city. Um, those of us with educations and those of us with shamelessly with jobs. No, I hear you. It's scary. Um, what does, do you know, does Eric, is Eric Garcetti's office aware of what's transpired as far as the um, lynching of a statue in front of his, of this council member's house? Is he aware of the situation? Do you know? Because I have no be- idea okay. if he is. And Given the way that he has failed to adequately address the catastrophic crises at his at his doorstep, I think he's more than a little out of touch with things beyond what's happening locally in Echo Park. I mean, the catastrophic incompetence of how Project Roomkey has been handled 
um, it's a wonder he hasn't resigned and run and fled in shame. I mean, it is to have this many vacant hotel rooms and this many vulnerable people on the street is shameless doesn't even begin no, to capture. No, it's inexcusable, yeah. They could have done something different. I agree with you there. And it's, that level of moral cowardice is just, um, I, and I, I, I'm not an easily shocked person, but it is just, it's an obscenity, actually. Yeah. That's what it is. It's an obscenity. It is an obscenity. And, you know, I don't see him making any moves to, to correct any of these things, really. I mean, when he was asked to um, defund the police, just so people understand this, 54% of the city's budget was going to the LAPD, 54%. That is absolutely outrageous and unnecessary, which, I mean, this is why the police department is so militarized, is because they have all this money to buy these toys with. You know, um, Lauren, I was at the one of the BLM protests there on Fairfax, and they had snipers with M4s on the roof looking down at protesters. This is outrageous. I don't. Well, it's, it's beyond outrageous. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I just go. I mean, it's just, I'm, it's outrageous. So, one of the things folks are learning as they understand that they have a neighborhood council in Echo Park accountable to them is that when you're not watching, stuff happens in your name and with your money. Yeah. We have for too long as a country, um, and I want to push to the side that the modern police really is an outgrowth of the slave catchers. We can deal with that in another day. Um, and so is forever intertwined yeah. with uh, the policing of people of color in public and private public and private spaces. We have allowed that as long as it's happening somewhere over there, right. we can, then everything is okay. What the, the police budget is not new. When Eric Garcetti was a well-pampered schoolboy, Daryl Gates was in charge, oh, yeah, and he destroyed the property of uh, poor people yeah. willy-nilly covered extensively by the LA Times without repercussions. Daryl Gates was a piece of work. Without repercussions. Yeah, he was a piece of work, no doubt. But he is a piece of work from a long line of pieces of work. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely true. Um, In my neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? None of it. In in my neighborhood, Rampart scandal was allowed to happen because the victims were disproportionately people of color and immigrants. I think that's absolutely the case. I have, I, I absolutely agree with that. If it had been in Encino, we would have had a completely different response to the egregious and overfunded. I mean, I saw this recently. It wasn't that long ago that the police trainee who's we and we train, we pay for it, we tell them what to do, they work for us, all of this is done in our name, we need to take back our power. Having said that, a school teacher starting out and a police officer starting out used to make roughly the same salary. Oh, yeah. Now the difference What is- that police officer makes is so far beyond what the college-educated and often with a master's degree, teacher makes and then has to pay back 
what she, and it's usually a she, have spent to be fit for her job and still make less money than the police officer that we've trained. Outrageous. This makes no sense. No, it makes zero sense. We as a city are responsible for the priorities that we allow our government to set in our name. And for everybody who likes to think that the neighborhood council system was solely invented to placate the San Fernando Valley, um, where a lot of cops live, as it turns out. Yeah. Um, so that they wouldn't succeed from the city of Los Angeles, which I frankly, remember I consider, that. That's right. I, I consider that an <laughs> idle threat. Yeah. I believe that the neighborhood council system is also a debt owed to the neighborhoods that were wrecked because right. of the erection in 92. After years and years and years of police brutality and other um, crimes in progress against vulnerable people. And when I say crimes in progress, I mean the things that we don't call crimes, like defunding, like not having enough, uh, 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 allowing food deserts to prosper, like allowing the best teachers to transfer out into the better funded schools and and forcing poor kids to deal with greenhorns who didn't have the practice, the experience, or frankly, the staying power needed to really make an impact on students' lives. All of these ills, all of these crimes took place with our passive consent, and I would call it indifference. So I'm hoping that what's happening now around Echo Park Neighborhood Council will not be a moment in time, but will be a movement that continues what we need in terms of civic involvement at all levels of our government if we are going to make this city livable, functional, and safe for all of its residents. I agree with you. I hope that, that, that it is a wake-up call. So let me ask you this. How many people do you think actually participate in the, elect, in the elections of their neighborhood councils? Uh, when you ran for office, did you see a lot of engagement? Because I feel that maybe we need to uh, increase the awareness around what the neighborhood council is, its importance, and get more people to get involved with their council, with electing members, and, and holding them accountable. You know what I'm saying? So what are your thoughts on that? Well, so neighborhood councils, like all off-year elections, get very poor turnout. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of confusion, too, about what is meant by a stakeholder. Um, You know, there's there's three definitions of of a stakeholder. Resident isn't just one. Um, In my case... Businesses in the neighborhood, too, right? Right. If you work, own a business or property, or reside. Okay. Um, So that's one problem. The second problem, and I can tell you on our neighborhood council um, on outreach and communications, we had a separate ad hoc group that worked really hard to, to, to publicize not only the elections, but to plan an event around it, to draw people in, to get, and, and there was an improvement. The downside is, is that, you know, a lot of times these things are held on a Saturday when people have other things to do. Mail-in ballots are great when the county's paying for it, but when it's coming out of your neighborhood council budget, it becomes cost prohibitive. Right. Um, so obviously, we need to do a better job, neighborhood councils in general, to get people to turn out. Um, in my case, I've been reelected to represent my district, um, which is one of the poorer ones, just on the outer edges. Uh, and that's District 5, and only eight eligible voters showed up to vote for me. 
right. it? Yeah. And, but oh, that's when so you think, painful to hear. But people aren't aware. Right. I, my neighbors are working class. You know, all their days on Saturdays are spent doing the chores that they can't get done during the week. Whereas we also have a lot of at-large seats. And, and in my view, at-large seats favor, um, it allows people who live in, in close proximity to vote for each other. And I don't think that's in our, that's not something we can address now. We'd have to look at in the next election cycle. But you can see how some of the inequities also come into play when it comes to who votes and how they vote. And so I, I think the top vote getter for an at-large position was somewhere around 189 votes. And okay. you can vote for so many seats at large plus your own district. So these things kind of can compound low voter turnout and we make, you know, people like me can get a seat with, with eight people voting. That doesn't mean that I'm only representing eight people. Right. You know, we have more population density on some of the lower represented areas right. than you would in the neighborhoods, say, where there's a lot of homeowners who support at-large um, people running. So there's that. Oh, man, eight people. So we do need to work on outreach on that. Uh, and I would imagine that the same is the case across the city of L.A., that yours is not, you know. Unique. Unique, right, exactly. So we'll, we do need to work on that. Do you think also, because I know that these are, um, even though you get elected, you're an elected official, you're also a volunteer in one regard because you're not getting paid. Do you think it would help if they started maybe adding salaries to these positions? And is that something that is possible? I mean, it seems like there's, we have the money, we're just spending it in other areas. I mean, if we can afford $300 million for voting software that doesn't function. <laughs> Speaking so. of boondoggles. <laughs> exactly. But that I was a county, that was a county boondoggle. That were right, fair um, enough, yeah. Um, but, uh, and <laughs> I have my face in shame. Um, so it has come up in other circles that, and as a unionist, I believe any job worth doing is worth paying people. For. I agree. I agree. Um, I think that were there to be a significant stipend that was attached to being an elected official, you would see more robust elections. You see, because you'd attract more people to run for it, right. and with mm-hmm. that comes attention. Now, how that would shake out in terms of representation, I couldn't really say. Mm-hmm. But leaving it to to, to, to give you another view, looking at a lot of committees, uh, um, city committees and commissions that appoint on boards that appoint people, you end up getting the people who can afford to do it. That's exactly right. That's what I'm getting at. You end up with and people the, that have the free time and the money to be able to volunteer. Exactly. And right? then they don't have to represent the people that they suppo- are supposedly representing. They can represent other interests. Exactly. Um, and usually it's for people who look and uh, like them and are in their same socioeconomic status. So I think actually having not salaries, but it's probably going to be stipends like you would see when you run for a seat on the um, uh, community college board, right? Um, which has less work to do than say, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the LAUSD board was volunteering. We saw how messed up that got. Yeah. Now that yeah. you have 
uh, and how many inequities were perpetuated right. because of that. Now that you have salaries on the table um, that allow you to be 100% in that job, we're getting some improvement. Hasn't been great, but it's getting better. It's definitely getting better, yeah. And it means that the, that those elections are contested, and then when they're contested, there's much more advertising, and when there's more advertising, you get a little bit, you get better turnout. And yeah, I more think awareness. that, yeah, having stipends for this work would actually make it races more competitive and has the potential to improve overall representation. But as I, with yeah, anything, I would think so. yeah, but with anything, it is the responsibility of the voter. And in this case, a voter is any resident, regardless of immigration status, to step up and fulfill their responsibility to keep an eye on who they elect in their name. If you're not going to, I mean, pick your uh, cliche. If you let the fox in the hen house, it's not the fox's fault that you aren't paying attention, taking advantage of your indifference. And then all your chickens are gone. Right. And then you turn around, and you're like, what happened? Did this just, yeah. So, you know, 2020 has been a year, I think, of people finally realizing what's been going on for decades around them. And they're yeah. starting to become aware. They're starting to get angry. It's, um, it's kind of depressing that it took things to get as bad as they are for that to happen. But I'm hoping that people don't go back to sleep, that they stay engaged, and we can use this as a springboard for improving things for everybody because we can't continue down the path we're on. It's not tenable in so many ways. And I think that um, one of the things that we're learning, it's always amusing, well, not amusing, it's actually irritating, when people say, I can't wait to get back to normal. No, what? I hate that. Normal was not normal? working. Normal, normal was yeah. not working. Um, right? and, and you're still on the city council. I mean, you're seeing this idea that the problem is somehow disconnected from the choices that they've made. Right. From the um, coziness with developers. Um, that this is of, this catastrophe is one of our own making. Yeah, it's been going on for decades. That's what kills me. And every now and then, the universe slaps us upside the head and says, pay attention. And Mother Universe has said, you want to be able to stay on this planet? I need to show you in a few days what you not being able to drive can do for your air quality. Right? Right? True. Why were we as a city so comfortable with buying a Prius, driving by ourselves as if the fact that the wear and tear on the freeways wasn't going to put more pollution in the streets when we had to repair them? Why was it okay that so many of our children, especially our poor children, we're coming down with chronic illnesses because we want to drive. Yeah. And because we have let ourselves be put in a position where not having a car can be me not being able to take advantage of economic opportunity. We've done this all wrong. Are we really going to have to have an 8.1 earthquake before we realize that the bicycle and public transportation makes it better for all of us? Um, I cannot tell you how... Ca- how calm I have been not having, I mean, obviously I'm still, you know, sheltering at home like a reasonable person and wearing a mask when I go outside, but being able to calmly make meetings because I'm not stuck in traffic, trying to get from one place to the other 
is so you you just get so much more work done and you have so much more bandwidth to do that good work um we have an opportunity here to start to re-envision what the city is going to look like in the next for the next generation it's at our doorstep we can't do nothing we can't keep blaming our most vulnerable people for the mess that we're in and you know what if it means i'm having I don't drink a lot of lattes, so that's a bad analogy. <laughs> if, it, if it means that I have a little less disposable income, yeah, it's but okay. a better quality of life, I'm fine with that. I, I'm with you, Lauren. I agree with you. I think that it's worth the trade-off as far as I'm concerned.